0: We're well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We're continuing, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke, and Luke shows Jesus as the Messiah the Savior. He's the Lamb of God who is the sacrifice and the substitute for the sins of the world. Now, what we've been doing is seeing the final week of Jesus' life is before he goes to the cross, he's come to Jerusalem, he's come to the temple, he's been teaching. The religious leaders, of course, we know want him dead. They hate him. Even one of Jesus' own twelve, Judas, has gone to the leaders and and made a deal with him that he would turn Jesus over to them. For the last several weeks, we've been seeing the last night in the upper room, Jesus with his men. And Jesus made a change that was the Passover meal, but instead of being the focus on the Passover and the lamb and coming out of Egypt, he made the focus on himself, and he talked about him being the bread and him being the juice, and he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, last time we saw two things. We saw that he told his men that he would reward them in the kingdom, and it was great news. In fact, they were talked about, hey, they're going to rule over the nation of Israel, so it was great news, but then he told them some sad news, and the sad news is that they would deny him. In fact, they even said to Peter, said, Peter, you will deny me three times before the night is over. And of course, they all said, no, that's not going to happen. Well, this morning, as we continue, we're going to see two things. First of all, we're going to see Jesus as he prepares his men for the coming ministry. And he's going to talk about what's about to happen because he's going to leave. And then we see Jesus, we get into the garden, and we see him praying in the garden. There's so much, and we want to gain a lot from these this, this little short passage, but there's so much, especially in these last weeks, these last hours, as we look at it this way, of the life of Jesus Christ, there's a lot there. Well, let's begin. Let's talk about this for a second. You know we say prayer. and we say Prayer's hard. You say, well, it seems easy because what really is prayer? Prayer is just talking to God. And you say, how hard is that? Well, we know that prayer is the key to our fellowship with God. It is the key to having victory in the Christian life. 1 Thessalonians tells us to pray without ceasing. That's the idea of an ongoing attitude of prayer. But the truth is prayer's hard. In fact, many believers would rather do almost anything other than pray. One of the Greek words associated with prayers, agonazo, which we get the idea of agony. As we look in our passage this morning, as we study it, we're going to see that Jesus is praying in the garden and it's ongoing and it's hard. And he, and he does two things. He tells the disciples that they need to pray, that they won't enter into temptation. And then we see him saying, that is not his will, but the Father's will. And we're going to put a lot of that together as we go through our passage this morning. Well, let's begin. We've been seeing the final chapters of the life of Jesus Christ. And in these final chapters, there's some famous events. We see Jesus as he goes in the garden, we see that he gets arrested, we see trials, we see He's crucified, He dies and rises again, and uh, He indeed is the Savior of the world the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of mankind. We have been seeing in these last few weeks the events in the upper room. We call that the Last Supper. It was really Passover meal. Jesus sent his men. They got everything ready. They went into this upper room and they had what was called the Passover meal. But Jesus made a change because from the Passover, in which thinking back about Egypt, he made the focus himself and he said that this was his body and this was his blood and he wanted them to think about him as the one who's going to die and pay for sin. He's been teaching them several things even in this upper room and we saw some things from the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke doesn't give us a lot of details. The Gospel of John is where you can find a lot of details as far as the upper room. But in this little section, here's what we've been seeing. We saw that Jesus said that one would betray him. Of course, it was Judas, and, and when he said one would betray him, they, they didn't have a clue. They looked around at each other like who it would be. None of them looked over and said it must be Judas. So they didn't know. And so he talked about one would betray him. Then he talked about how to be great in the kingdom. And the whole idea boiled down to servanthood. Because that's one of the things they needed to learn. Even at the table, they were arguing over who, which one of those would be the greatest. Or which one is the greatest. And he wanted them to learn servanthood. The third thing that he taught was that they would receive rewards in the kingdom. And that was a very powerful thing because he said you'll be sitting on thrones judging the nation and ruling over the nation of Israel. So that was powerful but then he told him a sad thing, and that is they would deny him. And we talked about that. That uh, Peter said, I will not. He said, Peter, before the night's over, you can deny me three times. And so he's been teaching this. We're continuing, looking through this night. The meal is going to be finished. We'll see some of the things that Jesus teaches. Then they're going to leave, and they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we'll see Jesus, where it talks about praying. So two things we want to think about. One is, he, before they leave, he's going to prepare them for coming ministry. And the second, we're going to go into the Garden, see Jesus as he prays for the Father's will. Now let's, let's break down the passage. Uh, two things this morning, big, big things. First of all, preparing for the coming ministry. He's going to talk about past service. That's verse 35. And then he's going to talk about beginning preparation now because what's about to happen? He's going to leave them and they're going to have to do the ministry. The second part of the study is that Jesus goes into the garden and he prays. He gives some instructions to his disciples. Then we see the prayer where he talks about the cup to pass and the Father's will. Now that's as far as we're going to get this morning. We'll get some more next week when we get in there where we see the angel comes and ministers to Jesus. And then the last thing is he gives some continuing, continued instructions to the disciples. We'll see some of that next week and, of course, more as well. But we'll just get into the garden this morning to see what's going to happen. Well, let's begin. Jesus is preparing his men for the fact that he's about to leave, that he's going to, he's going to be gone. Jesus is leaving. He has died. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise again. He's going to walk on the earth for 40 days. Then he's going to send back to the Father, and he's going to be at the right hand of the Father. What they have to realize is they are are going to be left behind. they got to be left to carry on the ministry. They are going to be the representatives of Jesus Christ. They're just now beginning to understand that. He's been telling them about He's going to die. The Gospel of Matthew says five times He tells them He's going to die and rise again. They still hadn't grasped it. They just don't understand it. And now, and we see in the Gospel of John and of course in the Gospel of Luke, they're beginning to grasp this. In John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Because they were beginning to say, Wait a minute, He's leaving? What are we going to do? What are we supposed to do? And so he he wants them to realize they have to carry on this ministry. And by the way, the same is true for us. We're to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ to our generation. Just like they were left to carry it on and it's been passed down, we have to do the same thing. In fact, two things to think about. One is that are you prepared to stand for Christ? Are you prepared right now to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ? Do you know the word? Do you know the messages, the, the, the message of the gospel especially? Are you ready? And then the second thing, are you helping others, helping to prepare others? Because if the Lord doesn't come back soon some of us are going to die and then we got to be preparing others to continue to carry on this ministry so that the ministry of Jesus Christ so what we're going to see is Jesus goes through this that it's a hard time he's going to leave and things are not going to get easier for them things are going to get worse for them they're in a fallen world and as they came after Jesus they're going to come after them. And the same is true for us. We live in a fallen world. We who know Jesus Christ is Savior, we want to stand for Jesus Christ. I guarantee you, and, and Jesus tells us it's going to be hard. Let's see what he does. He reminds them, first of all, about the past. Verse 35. He said, and he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and a bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. He said, you know, when I first sent you out, did you need anything? The answer was no. He originally one time he sent out seventy-two. Sometimes he sent out the the twelve. Sometimes he sent them out two by two. He told them to go do ministry. And he said, you know, when I sent you out, I didn't have you take a money belt, which would be extra money. I didn't have you have a bag, which would be a bunch of food. I didn't have have you have sandals. He's saying because I didn't want you to have extra shoes. I just wanted wanted you to trust me. And he said, "When you went, did you did you need anything?" And I answered, "No, no. We didn't need anything. Everything was fine because see the focus at that time was really just on Jesus. They were representing him, but he was the one that was still there. The religious leaders were still after Jesus. But he says, "A change is coming because when I'm gone, the focus is going to be on you." And you're going to need some things after I'm gone. Notice what he says. Verse 36, And he said to them, But now, here's the change. Whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, a bag. Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. What he's saying is this. I'm going to be gone and you're going to have to be ready. You're going to have to be ready to carry on this ministry. I've been here. I've been the focal point. Everybody's been following me around. But I'm going to be leaving and you are left to take this ministry on for the rest of the world. And you've got to be ready. It is a battle. There's a battle coming. And we have to understand that the Christian life is a battle. It is a spiritual battle. As they hated Jesus, he's saying basically you're going to come after these guys. And the truth is this. If they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us. You know this. That if you stand for Jesus Christ, especially college students, if you get on that campus and you tell people that you believe Jesus is the only way, the way, truth, and life, no other way to the Father, he's the only way, there are going to be people attacking you. When you stand for Jesus Christ, maybe in your office or where you work or something, and you say, look, I believe there's only one way of salvation. I believe Jesus is a Savior. I believe the Bible's God's Word. I don't think there's a lot of ways. You, you're going to make enemies. There are people are going to say, oh, well, where did you come up with that? And we live in a fallen world. And as we stand for Jesus Christ, we're in a spiritual battle. We must be ready to stand strong for Jesus Christ. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, war, forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. It's Ephesians chapter 6. And so we must be ready to do that. Jesus is telling his men, you better get ready. I'm about to leave, and you're going to be standing uh, for me. To live for Christ in this world is a hard thing to do. Uh, I mentioned this in the first service. If you go back 40 or 50 years ago, in our country, it was a good thing to say that I'm a Christian. It's a good thing to say I go to church. It's a good thing to say, oh, we're all Christians around here. But our times have changed. And now people look at us and when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, they say, well, what gives you the right to think you're right? Or there are a lot of different things and, and we don't like what you believe. And see, what's happened is instead of people understanding what we stand for, Jesus Christ and salvation, they all hear what we're against. And I think one of the problems is the world all knows what Christians are against. They don't know what we're for. We're for Jesus Christ, we're for eternal life, we're for the grace of God, we're for people having eternal life and salvation as a gift. But they all hear what we're against rather than what we're for. And that's one of the things we need to really make sure that we are clear on. What do we believe, especially in the issue of salvation? Well, he tells these guys, it's going it's to get tough, so when I sent you out the first time, you didn't need anything. Now, you better get the money, you better get this. And then he says, if you don't have a sword, buy one. And the issue is, is he really talking about a sword, sword? Is he saying you're going to fight? We'll see in just a minute what does he say. Look down at verse 37. He says, For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Now, he's he's quoting from Isaiah 53 there when he says he was numbered with transgressors. He's saying the things in the Old Testament which were written about me, Jesus is saying that, are about to be fulfilled. And they are. Because what's going to happen, they're going to go to the Mount of Olives. And here comes this crowd led by Judas. And there's going to be the temple police, the Jewish temple police, and the religious leaders. And maybe some even some Roman soldiers may be mixed in. And the crowd's coming with torches and swords and everything. And they're going to come arrest Jesus. And they're going to get him. And they're going to try him. And they're going to end up killing him, putting him on a cross. He's going to die. Of course, he's going to be buried. And he's going to rise again. But Jesus is saying, all this is going to happen. All of this is going to happen. And notice it says he was numbered with transgressors. That's Isaiah 53. And he was because when Jesus went to the cross... The cross was a place of execution Now today when you think about a cross People say I wear a cross around my neck Or I have cross earrings Or I have a cross on my Bible Or I have a cross We think we think of the cross And we think well you know the cross is That's like jewelry The cross is, is a nice thing At the time of Jesus The cross wasn't a nice thing A cross was a place of execution If you did something wrong And the Roman government wanted you dead They took you out and put you on a cross And so to say take up a cross Was to say you got to die We might say today You need to take up your electric chair You need to take up your gas chamber, you need to take up your lethal injection because the cross was a way to die and it was not a place of honor. And so when Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, he was said, you are a criminal. They took Jesus out, put him on a cross with these two other guys and they put above his head what he had done wrong. That's what they did in those days. They put this guy was a robber. This guy was a murderer and they put it up above his head and they crucified him. People would came by and they saw the guy dying on the cross and they'd say that guy was a Murderer. When they put Jesus on the cross, what did the sign say? It said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's what it said above his name. He was numbered with transgressors. He was considered to be a criminal. And what Jesus is saying, listen, if they considered me a criminal, what are they going to think about you? What is he going to say to these guys? What do they think about you? You remember after Jesus died and rose again? Before they saw him, where were the men? Where were the disciples? Were they all walking up and down the street going, how you all doing? Good to see you. No, they weren't. They were in rooms hidden. They were afraid. Because if they came after and got Jesus, they're going to come after and get them. And what Jesus is saying, you better be ready for the battle. Because when you stand in a fallen world for Jesus Christ, there is going to be a battle. Now, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. We're living a spiritual battle. And that's what's happening. So he's telling them that. He said, listen, I tell you, that was written about me must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with transgressors. But that which refers to me has its fulfillment. It's going to happen. And think about us. We are in a spiritual battle. And we stand for Jesus Christ. I hope every one of you in this room stand for Jesus Christ. Now it's easy not to. See, so you just kind of go through life. Not everybody has to know what you believe. They don't have to know whether you come to church. They don't have to know whether you believe the Bible and believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have to go around saying that. But if you do, if you stand for Christ and if you make it known what you believe, you're going to have enemies. There are going to be people against you. That's why the Bible, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, put on the armor of God so that you can stand. Be ready. And how do, we, how do we stand? What do we have to do? We have to know the Word of God. We have to make application in our lives. We have to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to know the clear God, grace message of salvation and be ready. We have to stand. Now, the next verse is a little bit hard because it's a little bit hard to figure out what they're saying here. Look at verse 38. It said, And they said, Now, this is after Jesus said this. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now, it's hard to tell what's going on. It could be looked at it this way. Jesus says, you better stand, you better get ready, you better this. And they go, hey, we got two swords. And he goes, yeah, two, that's enough. That's enough. Or it could mean that when they said, we got two swords, he's going, that's enough. Because, see, he's not really talking about a physical battle. He's talking about a spiritual battle that's coming. You remember at the arrest? You remember they're in the garden, and they come to get Jesus, and they grab him. And what does Peter do? Peter has one of those swords, and he pulls out that sword, and he goes to try to hit a guy, tries to hit the the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus, and he cut off his ear. And Jesus didn't heal that man, but Jesus said, put the swords up for you. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Jesus wasn't talking about a physical battle here. He's talking about the spiritual battle that they're fixing to go through. Now, it's going to be physical a lot of times because they're going to come after them to try kind to of get them. But it says, they said, we have two swords. He says, it is enough. There's no way to tell whether he means, that's enough, you got two of them, that's good, or he's saying, that's enough. We're not really dealing with that. Regardless, we have to be ready to know and apply the Scripture. Knowing the truths, knowing the gospel, knowing the clear message of salvation, knowing what we believe because we're to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. That's what it says in Philippians. We shine as lights in the fallen world. And that's what we must do. We're to be the lights. The truth for all of us is this. Number one, that we are to be ready to stand for Christ. You're going to have to know the scripture. You have to know and apply the Word of God. That's why at Countryside our goal is to teach the Bible whether it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday school, CBI, uh, small groups, whatever it is. The goal is that the Bible will be taught so you can know it and apply it because you've got to be ready to stand for Jesus Christ. Second thing, though, is be preparing others to carry on after us. have got to be helping others grow in the grace of knowledge. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. Take the things you've been taught and trust these to the faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. That's the plan. Now we've seen Jesus And he talked about getting ready Uh, He's going to leave Get prepared From this we're going to go to the garden And what we're going to do Is we're just going to start in this this morning Not going to go into a lot of details But uh, next week we'll get more details And what we're going to do In the next couple of weeks Is go to some of the different gospels as well Because if you want to get the picture Of what's really happening Luke doesn't give us everything Just like Matthew doesn't give us everything Mark doesn't give us everything John doesn't give us everything They all have a purpose In their plan In writing their gospels So for us to be able to put it together We'll go to the different gospels to be able to see how some of these uh, fit together. Uh, we're going to see um, the arrest, the trials. There's six trials: three by the Jews, three by the Romans. We're going to see him taken before Pilate. We're going to see him taken before Herod. We're going to see the, the the beatings. We're going to see the crucifixion. We're going to see what he says on the cross. There are a number of statements that he makes. Luke doesn't give us but two or three of them. We're going to see what he says. Now, when we look at this passage. And you think about the upper room, if you look in Luke 22, beginning at verse 14 and ending at verse 38, that's all you have in the Gospel of Luke on what happened in the upper room. But you might say, I'd like more details than that. Well, if you go to the Gospel of John, the upper room is covered in John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Five chapters on what happened in the upper room, and so it 's a lot of fun to to go through that and see how that fits now. One of the things we see in the in the Gospel of John is they, they get through with the, Lord, with the with the meal, they sing a song as that 's what they were supposed. they sang a psalm, and then they left, and they went through the city, and as they were going through the city, they came by a vineyard, and when they came by the vineyard, they stopped. And that's most likely when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He started pointing at that vineyard. That was the, the thing. And they looked at that, and he talked about abiding in him and producing fruit. And then it says that it went into John 17 that Jesus prayed what we call his high priestly prayer. He prayed for them, and he actually prayed for us. If you want to, sometime go look at John 17, and you actually realize that Jesus is praying for you. He prayed for you then. What happened is they then left the city. They left and went out what was called the Eastern Gate, sometimes the Golden Gate. They came off the top of Mount Moriah, which is where Jerusalem is built. They went down to the valley, Valley a Kidron Valley. Had a little, it's called a A Awadi is a little valley that when it rains, there's water in it. When it doesn't rain, there's not water in it. And so they would cross over this Kidron Valley, and they'd go up the side of the, the Mount of Olives. And it was called the Mount of Olives because there were olive trees all over the side of this mountain and on, on in that uh, on the side of that mountain was a little garden called gethsemane which means the place of the olive press what they would do of course whoever owned that part they would take those olives they would bring them over to the olive press and they would crush all those olives and they would get the olive oil there was a garden there there was a place that obviously jesus went along with his with his men because this is where Judas brings them right to this place. He knows right where it is. So they're going to leave and they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the side of the Mount of Olives. And so it's pretty powerful. Look um, look at verse 39. It says this, And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Now, it's, here's the key. It says, As was his custom. Now, Jesus did a lot of things differently. In fact, when he healed people, he almost never healed people the same way because he didn't want people to think there was a formula to his healing. But he did do a lot of the same things. He would obviously go to this garden a number of times. We know that from the Bible that he would tell us that when he would leave Jerusalem, he would go to the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives was a little city called Bethany. And in that little city was a family called Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. He would go stay with them. And so when you start looking at Jesus' life, he would go visit these people. He would go to the garden. That's why when Judas got the crowd and they're going to go arrest Jesus, they may have first come to the upper room. And they're already gone. And so Judas said, oh, they're not here. I know where they are. And so he's going to take them to the garden because he knows that's where Jesus is going to be. Because this was as his custom. He came to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. Now, some have said, why would they go to a garden? Well, I've read that it was said, because man fell, the fall of man began in a garden, the redemption of man is going to begin in another garden. I want you to see something, though. Hold your place in Luke 22 and turn over, just to back toward the front of your Bible a little bit, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to go through this quickly. I just want you to see it, uh, some of the events that happened, a little bit more of the details when they got to the garden. Matthew 26, we'll start reading at verse 36. In fact, we're only going to see two or three verses. So just to go over there just for a second and look at it. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. Notice this. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he came with his men. There's only 11 of them left. There were 12, but Judas is gone. Nobody even knew why Judas left. you Remember, Jesus looked at Judas in the, at, the, at the supper and said, whatever you do, do it quickly. Judas got up and left. The guys thought that he was either going to go get more food or give something to the poor. They didn't know why he left. He actually went to get the religious leaders and the guards to come get Jesus. So there's 11 guys. When they get there, you see that there there's the 11. And he says, stay here, I'm going over here. But watch what he does. Verse 36 again. When Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, he said, the disciples sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, <clears throat> that's James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Now notice what he did. He's got the men there, 11 of them, and he takes three of them and he says, Peter, James, John, I want you to come with me. Now those guys, they were what we often call the inner circle. Now, when you think about Jesus, and uh, you have to realize that he was like us in a sense that he had friends, and and uh, there were many, many people who followed Jesus around. Some of them followed around just so they could eat because he'd feed them, or he might heal them, or they would they were hoping to see a miracle. But there were a lot of people who followed Jesus around because they believed in him as the Savior. Of that, there were at least 70-something people that he sent out. Of those, there were 12 which were called his apostles. Of the 12, there were three which are often called the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And then of those three, there was one who was very close to Jesus. He was the youngest. His name was John. He called himself the apostle that Jesus loved. Now, these three guys were with Jesus a lot of times. If you remember, when the little girl, the little 12-year-old girl died, and Jesus went to the house to raise her from the dead, the only people he let go with him were Peter, James, and John, and her mom and daddy. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus went on top of the mountain, he only took Peter, James, and John with him so they could see what he will be like as the king. And now in the garden, he has the eleven, and then he says, Peter, James, John, y'all come with me. And notice what it says. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Now here's the question why is, he, why is he so distressed? I mean, he knows everything. Doesn't he know everything is going to happen? I mean, he's God, right? What's, what's, he, what's he so bothered about? In fact, verse 38 says, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, we don't see it. Go ahead and turn back to Luke chapter 22. We don't really see it in, in, in Luke 22 or anything. But Jesus took Peter, James, and John and said, Pray, pray with me. And then he went over a, a little bit ways and, and he prayed, and he came back, and they were asleep, and he woke them up and said, can't you guys keep praying? And they went, we're trying. So he said, keep awake and pray. And he goes over, and he prays, and he comes back, and what are they doing? They're asleep again. So he wakes them up a second time and says, could you guys not stay awake for just any length of time at all? And they go, we're trying. So he said, oh, I'll be back. And so he goes over and prays, and he comes back the third time, and they're asleep again. And he wakes them up, and he says, it's now time. The betrayer is coming, and that's about the time that Judas came. So we don't get all that necessarily in the Gospel of Luke. We'll see it as we tie some of these things together. But he comes out, and notice verse 40. It says, when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, it doesn't tell us anything in this Gospel about the fact that he let, you know, toward three of them to come with him. But he says, pray that you will not enter into temptation. What temptation? The temptation To deny Him. Because He's already told them, You're going to deny Me. And they all said, No, we're not. And He said, Peter, before the night is over, you're going to deny Me three times. I will die for you. I will not deny you. Well, all of them did. When, When they arrested Jesus and they grabbed Him, every one of them ran off. Every one of them ran off. And so He says, Pray that you'll not enter into the temptation. Now watch. Verse 41, And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down And begin to pray. So he moves away. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And then he moves away from them. And he's praying. And it says he began to pray. said he knelt down. Now people ask all the time. They say, well, is there a particular way to pray? I mean, are you supposed to get on your knees when you pray? Do you have your... Are you supposed to have your hands together like this? Can you close your eyes? Can you open your eyes? If you're driving, I hope your eyes are open. But anyway, if you're doing all this, people say, is there a proper way? Do you know when you look in the Scripture sometimes people are on their knees sometimes people are on their faces when david dedicated the uh, or you know was dedicating the temple when solomon solomon dedicated the temple he actually got on his knees and lifted his hands up like this and sometimes people say can you pray with lifting up your hands i mean you can pray any way you want to the key is to maintain your fellowship with your heavenly father and so he's about to pray and before we see what he prays just realize this he knows what he's doing he knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to take the sin of the world. He's going to be separated from Father. This is why he came. He came as the Savior of the world, the substitute, the final sacrifice for sin forever. What does he say? Verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now he's talking to the Father. He is in fellowship with the Father. You realize the Trinity is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It is God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son was, the father came up with the plan. The son carried out the plan. The Holy Spirit reveals the plan. What is his request? And we're going to see more details on this next week. But he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours. He said, if you're willing, and it's if and it's true, if it's true, you're willing, remove this cup. What's the cup? Well, the cup was a symbol of suffering because they would say, take this and drink it to the end. You know. Drink it to the bitter end. That's the idea. Because the cup was the suffering that he's about to go through. And he's saying, if, if, if it's your will, if you're willing, remove the cup. Then I don't have to go through this. And then he stops, but he says, yet yeah, it's not my will, but it's your will. See, he wants to do the will of the Father He came to do the will of the Father. He wants the will of the Father above His will. He came down from heaven not to do what He wanted to do, but to do what the Father wanted Him to do, and that is to die on the cross and pay for sin. Let's think about the cup for just a second. The cup is the idea of suffering. Suffering. How is he going to suffer? And because, let's think about this. You'd say, well, look, Jesus Jesus is God. In fact, he's the God-man. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. That's called the hypostatic union. It's the union of the deity and humanity. And so he's perfect God, perfect man. He knows everything. He knows what he's about to go through. Uh, what's going on? Well, we think about this cup. The cup really has two aspects of this suffering. There's a physical aspect and a spiritual. Let's talk for a minute about the physical He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. Isaiah says he'll be bruised, wounded, crushed. He'll be whipped, physically harmed. One of the Old Testament passages says that he is so marred you can't tell what he looks like. He is so beaten that he is unable to carry his cross. You know, if you were going to be crucified, your job was to take the top part of the cross out. He is beaten so badly and hurt so badly he can't even carry it. They have to get a guy named Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. He's going to suffer physically. Now, let me tell you, some people say, well, Jesus is God. I bet he could go, that didn't hurt me. Yet, let me tell you, he's a human being, had a human body. He was thirsty. He was tired. He felt pain. He went through that suffering. We can't even imagine the suffering. If you saw the movie, The Passion of Christ, and you saw all of that, and you go, whoa, that's pretty horrible. That was about like it was. Maybe may have been worse than that. So when he says, let this pass, first of all, the physical aspect is coming. But there's a second thing, and that's the spiritual. He's going to be separated from the Father. Because see, he's going to take the sins of mankind. First Peter 2, 24, he bore in his body our sins when he was on the tree. He's going to take the sins of mankind himself. The wages of sin is death, which is separation. He's going to be separated from the Father. There is going to be a break in fellowship between the Father and the Son that's never happened. From all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has been in perfect fellowship all the way up. And at exactly one point in time in history, Jesus is going to take the sins of every person and he's going to be separated from the Father. In fact, not only he's going to be separated from the Father, he's going to be separated from the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why when he was on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, the Father, my God, the Spirit, why have you forsaken me? He took the sins of mankind on himself. That's what he's saying. If it's any way, I don't want to be separated from the Father. We don't realize the greatness of this separation as he takes our sin upon himself to be separated. 1 John 2, 2, he's the satisfactory payment not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. He took every sin of every human being at one time and was separated. He had to drink the cup of of suffering. That's why he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why did he come? Some people say he came to be a good example. He came to be a prophet. He came to be a good man. No, he came to be the Savior. He came to die on the cross and pay for our sins to give us eternal life as a gift. Mark ten forty-five. he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love toward us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God had made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. First Peter 2.24. He bore in his body our sins. John 3.17. He did not come in the world to condemn the world. But the world through him might be saved. Over and over in the scripture. That's what we see. He came to be our Savior. You trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's the one that's going to keep you from being separated from God forever because He died in your place. He gives you eternal life as a gift. It is that simple. Faith alone. That's why He says, "Here, It's not my will, but your will be done. He came to do the will of the Father, to fulfill the plan, and that is to be the Savior. Now, think about this. When we pray... We should pray according to the will of God. Now, there are so many things. The Bible tells us, look, just lift up any request we want to. In fact, Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious of nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. You can talk to God about anything, anywhere, anytime, place. You can make any request that you want to. But the bottom line is, when you request something, the best thing is to say, Lord, this is what I want, but I don't know the future. I don't know what's best. So I'm asking this as a request, but it's not really my will. It's your will. You know, the will of God is found in the Bible. There's all kind of things there. But there are a lot of things that we pray about, a lot of things that we talk about that aren't in the Scripture. And we don't know the outcome. We don't know the future. And so we lift up our prayer request to God and we say, God, this is what I would like to happen. But it's your will. May your will be done. Because that's what's going to be best anyway. In 1 John to verses 14, chapter 5, verses 14, 15, this is what it says. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So when we pray, ask about anything. But you can always say, Lord, I'm I'm asking for this, but I don't know the future, and I don't really know what's best. This is what looks best to me, but nevertheless, it's really not my will, it's your will. The next time, we're going to see more about this prayer. We're going to see in the garden. We're going to see him come waking the guys up, and we're going to say, Judas, come after him with the crowd. And there's some things in the Gospel of Luke that we don't see. Because in the Gospel of Luke, he comes up and he kisses Jesus. One of the other Gospels tells us that Jesus steps out first and says, Who are you looking for? And one of them says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And it says they all took steps back and put their faces on the ground. All of them. The soldiers, the guards, Judas, everyone. I think I, if I'd have been that group out would have said, Thank y'all. Thanks for coming. I'm going on back with the rest of the group. I'm not going to do this. There's amazing things. What have we seen? We've seen Jesus prepares His men for the coming ministry. He tells them to be ready for battle. They have to be ready. Jesus and His disciples went to the garden. Jesus prays concerning the cup that it would pass, but it's really because that cup is the physical and the spiritual aspect, suffering. But Jesus prays, not my will, but the will of the Father. Let me give you some applications. Here's the first one. Be ready for ministry. I mean, we are left here to carry on the ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ. We are His representatives. Just as those disciples, He said, Listen, guys, I'm leaving. You've got to be ready. The same thing for us. We've been left here to take the message of Jesus Christ. So A, we got to know. Know we're in a spiritual battle. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're in a fallen world with Satan. It's all contrary to what we believe. We're in a spiritual battle. Therefore what do we do? We must put on the armor of God. That's the truth of God's word and stand strong and, and all of those things, especially Ephesians when you look at it so that we can stand. We must know the word of God. Know what it is. Apply it in our lives. Live it out. And then D, of course, is live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we live the christian life it's a walk of faith in the power of the holy spirit based on the word of god so we must know it know we're in a battle and be it's put on the armor of god and know the word and live in the power of the holy spirit that's how you can have victory and that's what we want to do second thing is this understand the sufferings of christ they're both physical and spiritual and the physical suffering of christ he was bruised and crushed and wounded sometime just go and read isaiah 53 Isaiah 53 tells what's going to happen to him. That was written five or six hundred years before Jesus was ever born. But it tells exactly what happened to him on the cross. It's very powerful. Also, Psalm 22. Look that one up. It's amazing. It tells, it tells about being crucified. It talks about hands and feet were pierced. It's, it's amazing. So there was a physical aspect. But then there's the spiritual. Understand that He was separated from the Father. He took the sins. He took our sins. And that's one of the things to remember. He took your sin and my sin, and He was separated from the Father. And that's why He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, so you and I we don't have to be forsaken. We don't have to be separated from God. By faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, we get to spend eternity with Him. Very powerful. The last thing is just the one we talked about, and let's pray according to the will of God. Just You can lift up any request anytime. time. Just remember, God's will is found in God's Word, but there are going to be things that you don't have in the scripture about things that you're thinking about or praying about or wondering about or circumstances in life. So what you have to do is you just be you have to trust God that He's working on all the events and say, God, it's really you know, this is what, what I think, this is what I want. You told me to let my request be made known, but at the same time I realized it's not my will. It's your will that should be done. So may we do that. May we be ready for ministry. Praying according to the will of God, understanding The sufferings of our Savior... Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great passage. Thank you for these truths. Help us to be able to put them together and know them, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we are to be ready for ministry, that we are in a spiritual battle, that you've left us on this earth. May we put on the armor of God. May we know and apply the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit so we can stand for you. Lord, as we look at the Scripture and we see the sufferings of Christ, physically it was just horrible, but spiritually, taking our sin and being separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't even comprehend that. Thank you Lord that Jesus died for us And was separated Lord may we continue to lift up our request to you But praying according to your will Knowing that what your will is That that's the best And Lord thank you that we can come to you with anything Anytime, any place, anywhere But may it be according to your will Thank you Lord for this passage Use us Lord for your glory We ask this in Jesus name Amen